Hi, everyone. Welcome to the seven day work week, the labor after labor podcast. Today, we're talking about parenting and the pandemic. Liz, do you want to start us off with a quote? Yeah, um, this is a quote from uh, Danielle Campomore uh, in Good Housekeeping. Um, and she's kind of reflecting on the way in which the pandemic has affected her parenting. Um, and she writes, pandemic parenting is turning me into a bad mom. And as I look towards the fall and I'm hit with the realization that I will once again be tasked with facilitating my newly minted first graders full time at home e-learning while caring for my one year old working and maintaining my home. I just don't know when I'll get the chance to return to the mom I used to be. Um, so I think that there's a lot of kind of anxiety right now about um, the added labor uh, that the pandemic has put on all parents. Um, and there's this kind of feeling that, you know, you're not measuring up to uh, uh, the kind of parent you want to be. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't have obviously a child in any kind of schooling, so I'm not doing any remote learning. Um, but even something as simple as, you know, play dates or going to grandma and grandpa's or doing anything, um, staying at home with your children 24 seven without that kind of break or without that kind of release in giving yourself the release or the break of the house and giving them, you know, outdoor time or outdoor, um, interaction with others. It's stressful and it's wearing and just, for everyone out there who's doing at-home learning, adding that on top of everything else, my God, I can't. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that it's also, I think, really challenging because um, whatever your skill set is, unless you are a um, uh, trained in early childhood education or even, you know, later childhood education, um, suddenly having to help kids learn is just a skill set that's outside most people's um, wheelhouse because unless you're a teacher or a childcare worker, um, you you don't realize uh, what that involves. So there's there's that added pressure, um, and then in addition to, of course, as the um, quote talks about, uh, there's uh, you know your job if you are working, and um, uh, just taking care of the house added on to that. Um, so it's just a whole other skill set that you're having to exercise on top of juggling everything else. As someone who was an educator, how long do you think it took before like you really got the grasp of like being an educator and being comfortable with it? And like, do you have any kind of thoughts or advice or words of wisdom on that? Or Well, yeah, I, I mean... First of all, like it's it's wholly different in a number of ways, right? Like if I'm in... For, I was in a high school setting, so I was only seeing, first of all, it's a group of kids. So it's in that way, it's harder because it's not one kid or two kids. It's a whole group of kids. So you're just managing way more humans. Um, but then there's also like the added benefit, whereas I, as an educator, am not in the same position as a parent where I think like kids will show a lot more respect to an educator than they will to a parent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a kid will, you know, not wait at all to bad mouth their mom or start screaming or crying whereas the kids have like social pressure of not doing that to me mm -hmm. and I would even see in parent-teacher conferences the way the kids interact with their parents versus interacting with me and you see totally different sides of them that they would never show in the classroom mm -hmm. um I don't know in terms of how long I mean it's I I don't know I would say it took a couple years to hit my stride but a lot of that had to do with um 
um, managing a whole group setting, which is probably the most challenging. Um, but then also, I don't know, it's also totally different when it's e-learning, right? Like at the end of last year, I did not ever feel like I got a grasp of remote teaching because it was just completely impossible to get kids to engage mm-hmm. through um, video. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in the classroom, you know, I could tap on their desk or look them straight in the eye and it's a lot harder for them to ignore you that way. Um, but I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I do think that, uh, yeah, a parent at home managing, and then there's like two different sets of learning or three different sets of learning, depending on how many kids you have. It's just a, it's a brand new challenge for a lot of people. And, um, I think that there's going to be, I think time will show that there's going to be like educational loss, um, uh, during this time. And I just think that that's a reality we're all going to have to deal with after the fact. I don't think any amount of retooling e-learning is going to really change that. I think Mm -hmm. it's just kids are going to not gain as much reading skills and writing skills uh, and math skills as they, as they would if they were in the classroom. And that's Mm -hmm. just, I think that's just something we're going to have to come to terms with as a society. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree. I didn't do much research. Um, in children of like schooling age I did a lot of like younger children research and like cognitive Mm -hmm. development and social interaction development in that sense do you have anything else for like older kids or do we want to kind of talk about like our kids our age that kind of stuff um we can move on to talking about our kind of context and our our younger age kids I think yeah something that um we previously brought up I think it was the first episode actually we talked about um, COVID and being a stay-at-home mom and maybe the like social interaction stages that our kids won't be hitting because um, they won't be interacting with anybody. So I kind of looked that up because it's something I genuinely worry about. Um, and I kind of said it the other day to some, I don't know who I was talking to, but it was another mom. And I was just like, you know, not only does it bother me that she's not getting the opportunities to hang out with other kids and she's not getting the learning and the experience and, you know, going to the zoo. Like when she was an infant, before all this happened, we went to the shed aquarium. We went to the museum. We went to the zoo, you know, we went to the pumpkin patch. Like we did all these things as a baby that I was looking forward to doing as a toddler where she'd actually kind of interact more and enjoy. And, you know, I feel bad that she's missing out on that but I also feel bad that I'm missing out on that. That like, mm-hmm. these are the stages, like this is the stage and the things I was looking forward to, you know, making mommy play dates and swim classes and all that stuff. And like, I'm not getting that either. So there's kind of a weird depression-y like feeling of loss, not only for like my daughter not getting the interaction, but I'm not getting the interaction. Yeah. But my only solace, like I was, so I was looking up kind of um, when babies or when kids like should start, when they start benefiting from like play dates or social interaction or anything. So um, according to hellomother.com, babies start recognizing faces at three months old. Mm. So, and it's normally mom first. So it'll probably be like, whoever the prime caregiver is. So whether it be dad, grandma, whatever, they recognize that first around three-ish months, give or take. And then by seven months, they start recognizing specific voices. So um, 
up until then, and the the specific voice is that's from an NPR study. Um, so before that, they'll just hear noises and react to sound. Um, but then at a certain point, they'll start hearing mom's voice specifically and realizing that's mom and then putting the connection of the face with the voice. Um, and the thing we brought up in the first episode that I thought was kind of interesting is like, what happens when you take that face aspect away or you put that mask on? You know, are they going to start um, not hitting that milestone? Is it going to be later? And is that going to affect babies or children in general? I don't know. There aren't studies because COVID is so new and current that I couldn't find anything on that. It was just basic, like, babies start, you know, looking at babies, whatever. Um, any thoughts on that before I go into anything else? No, yeah, um, because the the you're right. Because coronavirus is so new, there haven't really been any specific studies regarding if masks are going to be affecting them. However, I uh, I did some research um, around something called the still face experiment. Have you ever heard of this? Nope. Okay, so the still face experiment was developed in 1978 by a Dr. Tronic. Um, and essentially what the experiment is, is it has three phases. So a mother and the infant, and it's uh, usually a one-year-old. And this study's been replicated a lot over the years. Um, I, I read this uh this uh, study that looked at all the replications to kind of like look at metadata and see what had been uh, replicated over the years. And they, they found something like 85 variations on the experiment. So it's, it's clearly been replicated over and over again. Um, but what um, Dr. Tronic found was that um, you, uh, a mother and her one-year-old sit across from each other making eye contact and they do what mothers and one-year-olds do, which is, they smile at each other, they point, they make little faces, they touch each other, they babble a little bit. Um, and then the second phase of the experiment is the mother turns her face away and then returns and gives a blank, affectless, still face to the infant um, and does not change it for two full minutes. And what the infant does at first is the infant tries to re-engage the mother um, and starts smiling, doing everything that the little one-year-old can do to try and interact and get the mother to start responding again. She points, she uh, smiles, she makes noises. And then as this doesn't work, she starts to get stressed out. She starts crying, um, gets depressed. Um, and then by the end of it, she just turns away from the mother and gives up entirely by the end of the two minutes. Um, and so then the mother, when she turns back, phase three, and starts engaging the infant again, then the infant kind of, in a more reserved sense, will start interacting with the mother again. Um, and so what, first of all, in the 70s, there was kind of um, a, a wackadoodle kind of idea about infants that they were not participating in any way in their development, that they were just kind of... Um, lumps. Um, and so this was an important study at the time. And it's kind of maybe seems obvious to us like, yeah, of course, if you're not giving your child anything, it's going to upset them. But there was this idea that there was not that interaction, they weren't aware. And so what the study kind of established was that children and parents are like, they're, they're co-constructing their own social abilities. Um, and that that's really important. Um, in terms of coronavirus, there's a couple things where I think this is relevant. So the first thing is I found a couple people kind of off the cuff suggesting that the still face experiment is the same as people wearing masks during the coronavirus. And so that's what I was thinking in the beginning. It's like, okay, is wearing a mask in front of your infant the same as showing them still face and therefore is it distressing to an infant? Um, 
And so there, I found some people that were saying, yes, uh, there's this uh, person out of the European Institute of Perinatal Health, uh, where they're essentially saying this is the same as still face um, when you have a mask on. Another um, writer from parents.com cites a researcher, Casper Addiman, out of uh, University of London, who said, quote, someone playing... Um, with a modern smartphone is exactly like a still-faced experiment. So this, they were talking about how the pandemic has made us on our phones more because people are working. Um, and therefore you constantly looking at your phone is the same as the still-faced experiment. Um, but what's kind of interesting to me, I don't know if that's true because they're just saying that it is. They're saying that it's exactly the same, but there actually was a study um, where... Because I, as I said, that um, there've been so many replications of this study, like over eighty-five. Um, there was one where they didn't; they put a mask. They actually put a mask on the parent, um, but the parent still had vocalizations and eye contact, and the kid did not freak out. So it seems to me that people are making claims like still face and the mask are the same, but actually, as long as you're still making eye contact and vocalizing with your child when you have the mask on it's fine. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting because I kept finding these people saying it, but there actually was a study with a mask and it said there was, there was, uh, there, there was no, um, you know, freaking out affect. And then the other thing was there was another one of these studies that showed the variation of it. And, um, it, it was still face. So the mother's like looking at the child and showing nothing. Um, and then the other, the, that was the control. And then the other one was the parent turning away to look at something else or talk to someone else. And the baby freaked out at the still face, but did not freak out at the parent turning and talking. So again, this idea, like you're looking at your phone, this is going to be detrimental for the baby. It's the same as still face. Like, I'm not saying that like looking at phones, isn't going to have any adverse effect, especially depending on how much you're doing it. But equating it with this experiment seems to be like kind of a leap of a claim that actually hasn't really been replicated because this, this experiment is so has been done so much and with so many um, variations that actually it's showing that like turning away, looking at a phone, it's not the same as uh, no affect. Um, I am sorry, this feels like it's going on forever, but um, the thing that I do think does have implications for the virus um, and does have implications for still face is that um, where this becomes an issue, because of course it's like, well, when do parents just like look at their kids and give them nothing? Well, if you have depression, if you have severe depression, you often have times engaging with your infant, especially um, if we're talking about um, what's the word I'm looking for post labor postpartum. Yeah. Especially in parents who have postpartum depression, um, where, uh, you have trouble engaging with your infant, that does become an issue. And actually what one person said, um, this was, uh, this was that still face, uh, like replication by a researcher named field in 1994. And what he found was that, um, still face is worse or depression and not engaging with a child has worse effects for the infant than the parent not being there at all. So like that kind of thing where you don't engage with the child, it's very distressing to them because they're, they 
play off you in order to understand how to make, um, how, how to regulate their emotion, what, um, what smiling should produce. And so if you're smiling and it's producing nothing, um, it's very distressing. And so a lot of them are, you know, a lot of these researchers are saying, this is how kids learn how to self-regulate. Um, and it also showed links with parents who have depression. And then they use this experiment to explain why kids have problems with like behavior regulation later in preschool and even up through high school, because that early time of interacting with your primary caregiver and understanding facial cues is so essential to you self-regulating later. And, um, yeah, so if you have um, how this relates to the pandemic, then is that there has been a big uptick in mothers reporting depressed feelings during the pandemic, um, and so it my my thought was that uh, when I first dove into this research that um, the masks would have this effect, and it seems like mm, maybe not so much. Uh, as long as you're still talking to them and making eye contact. And plus, of course, if you're at home, unless you have the virus, you're not going to be wearing a mask around your child. If you get the virus, you will probably be advised to wear a mask. But it's probably going to be okay. Um, but it's this other thing of depression and an increase in depressed feelings among women. I found um, American Enterprise Institute did a national survey um, in July of parenting during the pandemic. Um, and for mothers, 49% um, of mothers said they were lonely or isolated compared to 36% of fathers. Um, 51% of mothers said they were depressed a few times in the past week compared to 35% of fathers. 42% wow. of mothers said they cried due to stress in the last week, whereas only 19% of fathers did. Um, and 60% of mothers said they didn't feel they had time to themselves compared to 41% of fathers. Wow. Um, and then the numbers were even less for um, single people without kids. Um although some of them were like very close to the father numbers. Um, so the mothers, it seems during this pandemic are taking on a lot of um, really negative mental health spaces. Um, and so that's where it seems to be a bigger concern, not masks per se, but just like these larger mental health things that are happening around the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. I found, um, I found general uh, depression statistics, not specifically mothers, um, and this is from the medical news today. And it was saying before the pandemic, US, uh, the U.S. was reporting like 8.5% of depression and it's risen to 27.8% um, nationally. Um, but this is a little dated. This was from like April. So this is really when in the U.S. we started like shelter in place and things were still really new. So take that number with a grain of salt. I feel like your numbers are a little more um, relevant, but yeah, everything that I was reading um, was 100% showing an increase in depression. I mean, that makes sense. And we all know this, but it is almost alarming. The fact that it's worse to have the, I mean, it 100% makes sense, but it's worse to have that blank kind of like vacant face to your child rather than not looking at them or, you know, having a face covering. Um, I found something from CCAN, S-C-A-N of North Virginia. I tried to look up what that stood for and it wasn't really clear. 
Um, but it's an organization in North Virginia and it was talking a lot about, there's a ton of resources, but this one in particular was talking about like, um, the developmental milestones for like infants and toddlers, preschoolers, um, school children and so on and so forth. Um, and what made me think about it is for infants and toddlers, it says during the first two years of life, huge amount of development is rapidly occurring. Um, children react to smiles and positivity. They uh, develop stranger anxiety and they develop attachment and comfort um, to you or specific objects. They begin to show anxiety. They start to imitate and they start, that's how they learn smiles and coos and talking and everything. Um, already they can be affected by emotions and parents and others around them. So that ties into the depression. 100% makes sense. Um, and it's just saying like, as a parent, you can respond to your baby's needs or whatever, but make eye contact um, involve your baby in daily activities, which you can't do anymore, but making sure that you're interacting, babbling, smiling, all of these things. Um, and then it starts talking about play dates, which is where I did a lot of my research, but, um, yeah, it 100% makes sense. And it's, I never heard about that study before, but I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And that's done 85 different times and different variations. And it all comes out the same. You can see videos of it online. It's really hard to watch especially I think as a parent of a child where it's like you know that it's like it's like you're you're fucking with the kid yeah. you know it's like and that's why they only do it for two minutes because otherwise it's just too distressing for the infant yeah but they really want you to respond to them and just it's not even like she's frowning or making an angry face it's just nothing face and it's just really it's their whole world is turned upside down when that happens and you just feel so bad that's terrible oh and it's just so in the beginning like the baby is really trying like what's going on come on this usually works and then just gives up and like like slumps over gives up like it's sad yeah it's uh it's really it's an interesting study well okay so go ahead sorry no i want to hear more about what you found with uh play dates oh yeah because play dates are essentially impossible now unless you are willing to take on some modicum of risk and you know, that's different for each family, what you're going to do. Yes. So from parents.com, they gave this whole list of like how to do the perfect play date, which is kind of silly, but is there a such thing? Um, but everything that I was reading was that it's not really important for children to start having play dates or interaction with each other until they're like two and a half, three mm. Because up until that point, they're not interacting and playing with each other. They're just playing next to each other. Interesting. Um, Playdates are important because it improves language skills. It builds self-esteem, strengthens learning skills, resolves conflicts, establishes positive attitudes. So there's still things coming out of having a playdate at a young age, like even before three. Um, but don't expect anything like your traditional playdate. If you do anything before that, it's just really um, kids getting used to being around each other. The idea of sharing is not a thing that age. They don't understand that. They won't grasp it. Um, more so just like seeing how you interact with another adult and mimicking that kind of thing. And the idea of respect and um, space recognition and things like that. So, yeah, they, everything that I've read was three and up is when it's starting to get really important. Um, like preschool age, they start 
exploring um, independency. They start um, expressing affection openly. They start, their stranger danger starts to go down a little bit, like from eight to 18 months, separation anxiety and stranger danger gets really high. Like babies get really attached. And then by like two, three, it starts dropping again. So play dates are actually like fun and it's not, you know, clinging to mom and being uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, I beat myself up because I'm like, oh, Charlie should be on all these play dates, you know, but she's 14 months old. Realistically, she doesn't have to be on play dates. It's more, I want to be on play dates because I want the social interaction and, um, I want, you know, her to experience these things, but realistically, you know, does she know a difference between, me and my husband playing with her or her playing with another baby. I don't know. And the studies don't really say, you know, it's 100% necessary, but I don't know. I, I, I like it. I, she interacts the only playdates we've had this whole time. Um, we do cousins. So my brother has two kids and my other brother has three kids. So we'll do cousins, uh, but they're all older. So play date is kind of a stretch, like play around. Um, we did one play date with a little boy who was younger than her and the whole time she was just dominating him because he was younger and she was like, Oh, you have that. I want that. And would just take it. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, this is just not like, she's an alpha and it was just not, I felt bad. I just sat there and was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But she's one. She doesn't know how to share. Like she doesn't get that. So yeah, everything I was reading is that like, Playdates at this age, or at least Charlie's age, um, below three, again, aren't 100% necessary, but they can start picking up social cues and small development by being around other people. But I do think it's, I, I do think it's important that you're saying, but I like them, because when we're looking at these numbers of like mothers feeling isolated during the pandemic it's like okay um it seems to be that the more um happy you are as a parent the happier your infant child is um so that does seem relevant in that way that we are um losing out on that parent-to-parent interaction um when you aren't able to have play dates because of the virus absolutely yeah i'd 100 agree with that um yeah, it's hard. We said we talked about this when we were talking about our um, like rundown for the episode. And I said, you know, like being a stay at home mom is already pretty isolating. And then you throw COVID on top of it. And it's even more like you don't even think it, beca- it can become more isolating, but it does. Um, and it's hard. And I completely understand those statistics of like motherhood depression. Like it's hard, you know? Yeah. Um, an interesting uh, article I found was from um, the Washington Post. So I found an interesting article from the Washington Post um, where it was the stay-at-home father. Um, he's like a freelance writer, so he um, he sometimes does some work, but mostly he's parenting from home. Um, his name was Jason Basan Nemec, and he his article was called "In Quarantine: Some Stay-at-Home Parents Are Feeling Less Invisible." And so, what he was doing was talking to parents who are now de facto stay-at-home parents, but are still working, and talking to them about what they're now understanding about the role of stay-at-home parents. Um, and 
Um, they're definitely understanding that it's harder. Like one quote from um, a state, uh, 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 a new stay-at-home parent because the virus said, this is real work. And I don't mean work as in drudgery. I mean, it's a skill. It's a craft. It's something that takes time to get good at. It takes dedication. It takes devotion. I think those aspects are becoming clear to us right now. So this person anecdotally is saying like, I think that a lot of people have this kind of roll their eyes kind of attitude towards stay-at-home parents. Um, and uh, that, that now that they're doing it, they understand it is a skill. It's not just wiping up spit up and cleaning diapers. It's, there is a craft to it and you have to be an engaged parent um, in order to care for that child. I mean, it's no like random thing that there's early childhood degrees, you know, there, there is a kind of uh, uh, intellectual labor to that. And then of course, there's also the emotional labor of caring for a child that's all very challenging. Um, and many people don't notice that. Um, but then, um, you know, another person said, being a stay-at-home parent, though, without a job is still very different. So because you lose that sense of career identity that gets so much um, validation in the social realm, that like, yes, I'm glad that parents who are working at home are now seeing what our labor is, but for them to talk about their isolation and all those things, it's really not quite the same because stay-at-home parents have always that isolation from the public realm where I'm talking about this kind of eye-rolling of what you do all day and all of these like kind of assumptions about uh, stay-at-home parents um, where they don't feel validated in the public. And so like you get to say, you know, I'm working from home and parenting from home, whereas I've only been able to say I'm parenting from home and I don't get that same credit and that same validation. So I thought that was important to bring up that, um, yes, the pandemic has opened a lot of people's eyes, but there's still this, there's still a major difference, um, in the public eye. So do you think that people who, you know, have jobs and are working from home or parents who have jobs and are working from home, um, I don't want to say easier, but do you feel that they may be having an easier time than stay at home moms or dads or parents, whatever, because they still have that interaction, they still have that like scheduled time to work and zoom and interact. And is that kind of what it's getting at? Because that's kind of how I'm taking it. I'm not sure if I'm taking it correctly. No, I think that's relevant. And I, but I think that the issue is like, I, I wouldn't say like one's easier, one's harder. I don't yeah. think that's what the article is saying. But what I think that they're saying is that they're really still very different. Mm -hmm. um, like there was one quote where I read where, this uh, parent was kind of describing um, all of the uh, labor of childcare um, and was saying, if someone doesn't give me an adult problem to solve soon, I'm going to lose my mind. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when you are stay-at-home parenting all the time and you don't always have those quote-unquote adult problems to solve, um, that is like another layer of challenge. So you don't have interaction with adults. So it's, it's isolating and depressing. You don't have the public validation of, oh, this is my career. This is what I do. Um, and there's an assumption that you are stupid or lazy that we've talked about, uh, especially in the first episode mm -hmm. of this podcast. Um, but then also that like not engaging in that challenging work makes you like feel kind of not yourself. It makes you feel kind of, I don't know, mushy. It just, it, it's not, uh, so that's a challenge, but there's also the challenge of if you're having to 
log on to Zoom calls 40 hours a week and do all this labor. And also if you have a kid screaming in the background, that's just, that's also another challenge. And so I don't think the article or anyone, or I I would never say like, which one's harder. It just presents completely different challenges. But I do think the pandemic is making people that do stay in the workforce understand more what the labor is of parenting uh, full time. Got it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. When I say easy, you can't see me. I was doing like quotes. I wasn't just saying like easy. Um, But yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think that's relevant. Um, And I don't, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just like a little jaded today. Maybe that's just kind of the headspace I'm in, but I, and I don't want to be like, ha ha. Now you understand. Cause like, that's kind of shitty, but like, I do appreciate and think it's interesting that people are, um, understanding and kind of that generalized, um, you know, we're lazy and we don't do anything. And like you said, all we do is like wipe spit up and just, you know, go on with our day. Um, kind of like a haha where that's, it's a lot more to it. It's kind of validating in a weird way. Again, it could just be, could just be the headspace. And then maybe I'm a little sassy today. I don't know. No. And I think that it's like, so there was a, there was a, this, uh, incoming assistant professor of sociology at Harvard. Her name's Christina J. Cross. She was talking about this empathy that stay-at-home parents now are suddenly feeling because of the pandemic, you know, on social media, et cetera, where people are validating the labor of stay-at-home parents. And uh, she says, um, the in many ways, the coronavirus outbreak has shed light on the invisible, physical, and emotional labor that stay-at-home parents perform. Um, in other words, this is, you know, you see, you think it's easy, but there is all kinds of emotional and physical labor that goes on with parenting. And so in that way, there's empathy. Um, However, she says this growing awareness will hopefully translate into greater appreciation and empathy, but we as a society need to combine these feelings with action. So it's like, great, you feel bad for me or you get it, so what? Um, And when this virus ends, people are going to go back to work and what's going to change for stay-at-home parents? And so uh, what this... um, Harvard uh, sociology professor says is that she argues that policymakers should guarantee adequate health care to address the physical and mental health needs of not only employed workers, but also stay at home parents who are unpaid laborers, where it's like you don't necessarily have um, through your spouse's employee plan, any kind of coverage for insurance for mental health. Uh, You don't have any breaks, you know, as we this show is called the seven day work week to highlight that there are no breaks in the labor that you perform as a stay at home parent. Um, and so, you know, how do we translate this new empathy that is, it's transient. This empathy is going to go away when people return to work, they're going to forget. Um, so how do we translate at this moment that into actual policy change is a larger question that I don't know how we would do, but it does seem like the empathy is going to go away. And I don't think that's jaded to say I, and, and I do agree with you that it's like, good, people should get that this is challenging. I don't think that you're, uh, you know, I think that that's a real thing. Um, but I don't know how that translates into actual, like people having mental health coverage for unpaid laborers as stay at home parents. That seems challenging. That seems logical. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that would be amazing if, stay-at-home parents were able to apply for some kind of something, some kind of stipend, some kind of, I don't know, to get access to mental health because certain psychologists or counselors or whatever, like if they take insurance in the first place, 
it's still not inexpensive. It's still very expensive to get mental health uh, care and resources in the United States. So um, yeah, to actually have some kind of resource would be great because if you think about it, like at least for us, we're very budgetary and we kind of like decide like, is it worth or whatever with how we're spending our money? And sometimes it's just like, can you put the money and the resources and the time into, you know, a stay-at-home parent's mental health? Sometimes not because, you know, you do, you don't have the money in the first place or your insurance doesn't cover it. Or um, realistically, we're in a pandemic. So how are you going to get childcare to even go to these calls, even though a lot of them are Zooms? But you're right. The second everything kind of goes back to normal and everyone goes back to work, we're just going to be lazy freeloaders again. I just, yeah, I just like really in so many aspects of society, I feel like the pandemic has exposed so much inequality, right? Like the complete disparity between people of color um, and white folks and the death rates. Like, it's like, wow, the healthcare system in this country is broken. That is like a huge problem. Uh, Income disparities. It's like people who are lower income are feeling the effects of this virus in a completely different way from people who have coverage. Uh, Even in that same study that I was quoting earlier, um, with the percentages of um, parents and depression, it was like if you made over $100,000, uh, the depression was way less felt than if you were earning under $30,000. And so that huge income gap also produces mental health issues. And so it's like we have this opportunity at this moment where it's like we're seeing facts of like what inequality in a society produces in terms of like life and death realities. And I just worry that, yeah, we're going to miss the opportunity. I, I just, I, I don't, I, I'm, I, it's so sad, but I just don't, I mean, we're in an election year. Um, of course, you know, this is the 21st of September, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg just died on Friday and we have this like vacancy in the Supreme Court that's going, I, I, I feel that it will be filled by a conservative. I know that um, Donald Trump has announced that he's going to, nominate someone this Friday or Saturday, and the Senate has said that they will um, push forward a vote, um, unlike four years ago when Barack Obama was in a similar situation. So I just, we're going to have a conservative Supreme Court. I'm rambling now. I just, um, I don't, I don't think that we're taking this opportunity of what this pandemic has shown us to make any actual systemic change. It just feels like the status quo is reigning where those who are um, in positions of po- power will continue to be in positions of power and no one cares about inequality. It just continues. So I, I, I am maybe now being jaded. I just, I, uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll see, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem that anything's changing or anyone cares because our numbers are still the highest in the world. Um, in, in terms of who's dying from the virus. And it's just, it's, it's, it's really kind of shocking to me as an American. I mean, we're not taking it seriously whatsoever. I uh, went out with a girlfriend over the weekend and for the first time in I don't even know how long, like we sat on patios and it was 49 degrees out, but we were still sitting on patios. We had our masks on. We socially distanced. We did all that thing. And, you know, 10 o'clock hit and I was like, I'm not ready to go home. You know, like, woo, I'm not ready. And we were trying, one, trying to find places that were still open at this time and none were. And two, we found one bar it was still open. It had outdoor seating and it was jam packed with 
not to like poo poo on anybody, but like 20 somethings, none of them were wearing masks. All of them were all on top of each other. And I like, we stood outside and we were just like staring. And I was like, do you want to go in there? And we like stood there for a long time. And it's like, nope, don't want to. Like things aren't changing because people aren't taking it seriously. Like these are very simple things that they have laid out for us to do. Social distance. When you can't social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. You know, these are very basic, basic things. And to just completely disregard them and throw it out the window is insulting and stupid. Like, I don't understand. You know, if you choose to not quarantine, that's fine. But think about everybody else that you're running into. At least do the basic out in the world policies. Wear a mask. Distance. You know, if you're sick, stay home. Not hard. And people aren't doing it. And it's ridiculous. And you're right. Our numbers, I looked up numbers for kids. Um, I didn't look up total numbers. In the United States and globally, fewer cases of COVID-19 have been reported in children ages 1 to 19 compared to with adults. Children comprise up to 22% of the U.S. population. Recent data is showing that 7.3% of all cases in of COVID in the United States are among children. So at least among children, the number is still incredibly low. Um, and it's showing that hospitalization rates are significantly lower with children than it is adults. Um, so yeah, it's at least good that kids aren't getting affected in the same way with coronavirus as adults. But um, I know we've kind of talked, how have you been feeling with like Margot being around people and interacting and things like that um so uh you know the first month um no i didn't let anyone hold her um because um the doctors were pretty strict about um you know the the first month is where they're really really vulnerable um to any kind of um fever uh that a fever in a brand newborn is really really bad um I think that a lot of doctors are still recommending that like she not be held at all. Um, but I did let grandparents hold her. Um, and I did let my brother hold her this weekend. He came by and we, um, we had a socially distance, we grilled outside. And so we stayed outside and he held her. Um, but yeah, so I, and it, it gives me some anxiety, but I also just feel like I, I don't know. I guess I feel like social guilt of owing it to people to let them hold her, Mm -hmm. Um, which is like this whole other thing where it's like my mom and my mother-in-law both had a really hard time with not being able to hold her when she was first born and it upset them a lot. And it was just like, yeah, I'm not going to let you being upset risk my infant daughter's life so it's just it's not gonna happen um because though the hospitalization rates are very low I don't want my daughter to be hospitalized at all like I don't want it that's not a risk I'm willing to take right it's just it's not a risk I'm willing to take for my daughter to be hospitalized because I don't know if I've I think I've told you this but my friend um his entire family got the virus oh no and um they didn't know they got the virus because they didn't present with any symptoms. And so this was back in March and um, March and April. It was the spring for sure. Um, But 
So, but his daughter got very bad symptoms and she was four years old and they had to put her in a medically induced coma and put her on a respirator. And she was in the hospital for 11 days Oh my god! and they could only have one parent in the ward. And because his wife was pregnant at the time, she could not be by her daughter's side that 11 days when she's in the hospital. So, because they didn't want to risk her because she's at higher risk because she was pregnant. And so he was with her for 11 days and, you know, she, she was young. So like the death rates are very, very low, but he still had to sit there in a hospital for 11 days and watch his daughter get worked on and have that tube down her throat. I mean, that's not something you ever want for your kid. And, you know, great. She recovered. It's beautiful. I'm so glad, but we also like something that people I think don't talk about enough with this virus We have no idea what the long-term effects on your lung capacity are after you've been infected with this virus. We don't know because we haven't been able to look at longitudinal studies because it's brand new. And so it's like, it just is like, while it sucks and while like the, the rates are very low of risk, it's not a risk I was willing to take, especially when she was a month old. Mm -hmm. So after four weeks that I did let As I said, I let some people hold her, but I still I make people wear masks and I make them sit outside. Um, So that's like the kinds of ways in which I'm trying to mitigate it because it's just like you as a parent, there's always risk no matter what. And so you just have to, I guess, figure out what's going to work for you and your family and then just like live your life accordingly. Um, But yeah, it's really it's really challenging. How uh, do you want to talk about maybe like things that you've done with Charlie? I know you talked about play dates. Are there other things where it's like, what are the risks that you were willing to take and not willing to take as a parent? Yeah, we don't we don't go anywhere. (laughs) 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 To put it simply, we don't go anywhere. Uh, My husband is a first responder, so you know he is constantly around people. Um, and first responders, you know, do get tested. I mean, I'm not saying they don't get tested, but it's not like, um, someone asked me the other day, they're like, Oh, does Mike get tested regularly? And it's like, no, if he, um, if there's a possible exposure or, um, if he's starting to feel symptoms, then yes, they'll get tested. However, um, no, it's not like a regular thing. Like every Tuesday you get tested or something like, it's not like that. So we take any kind of fever, stuffy nose, anything really seriously because he's around people so much. Um, And he did have um, an exposure story. Everything was fine. He came up negative, luckily. But yeah, since then, we just we take everything really seriously. So anytime any of us are sick, we really kind of isolate. Anytime um, a family member you know, lets us know and it says, Hey, I was around so-and-so, you know, we isolate, um, at the beginning. I mean, it was July. So I guess it's not beginning was her birthday. And we did have a birthday party. A lot of people were really surprised we had a birthday party. Um, it was just immediate family and like a few aunts and uncles that we had and it was outside and everything. But, um, other than that, we don't, we really don't do anything. Uh, we do a couple play dates with cousins. Um, she sees grandma and grandpa who live across the street. But again, grandma and grandpa are pretty isolated themselves. They don't do anything. Um, and, you know, same with them. If they 
get news that they may have been in contact with somebody, we isolate from them, which sucks. But, you know, we do it because I just, I can't fathom having Charlie in a hot let story you told. I can't, I can't, I, I can't. And I just, I think that there's like a lot of like, well, they're not going to die like from the other side. And it's like, but being very sick and maybe being hospitalized is not good either. I, I just like, I think people forget that where it's like, you look at these numbers and it's like, kids are fine. It's like, yeah, but they could be severely sick. And then of course there's the reality that a lot of kids don't present with the symptoms and then they can pass it to adults that are vulnerable and do have pre-existing conditions that uh, are comorbidities or are very elderly. Um, as I had told you yesterday that I took Margo to see my grandmother because my grandmother is my only um, surviving grandparent um, and she is homebound and in a hospital bed and very, very ill. And so, you know, I really wanted her to see her great granddaughter because, you know, there's, she's, she's not doing well. There's a concern that, you know, she might die soon. And so it's like that first month, it was like, I was sitting there like, oh man, I really want my grandma to be able to see my daughter. Um, and so then we went and saw her yesterday. And of course I, you know, she didn't hold her or anything, but, um, and frankly, the, I think that, it's a bigger risk to my grandmother because she's not doing so well of, of us coming around. But of course we all wore masks and masks, but um, you know, we didn't get to go outside because she can't go outside. Cause she's um, she can't get out of her bed. So um, you know, it's just like this thing where it's like, I really, I, I, again, it's like this, I feel like I'm robbing family members when I'm being very cautious about my child. So it's like, how you know we all wore masks and we stayed far away and like showed her across the way and didn't let her hold her or anything and that was like our way of doing it right but I still don't feel great about it I think you just have to be understanding I feel a lot of parents are understanding um because I know we've had to like cancel things because you know one of us wasn't feeling well or we just weren't comfortable with the idea of like being around people um and yeah there's a lot of guilt because you're right, especially because she's an itty bitty baby and everyone wants to see them when they're itty bitty and, mm-hmm. you know, she's only that little once. But I think just trying to be as um, understanding as possible is really the way to go. But I, I 100% understand that guilt. It's terrible. It's hard. And um, that same survey I keep quoting because it was such an extensive survey from the American Enterprise Institute um, from July. Um they, they noted that, like, even though the child care cases are so low, parents are more worried, Americans, than non-parents are. So 28% say they're very worried about the, the virus compared to 19%. Um, so it's just like, I don't know if it has something to do with being a caretaker for another person that's younger than you, just, like, automatically makes you more of a worry ward. <laughs> but, like... It's, um, the fact is that we are more, parents are more worried than non-parents. And so it's just like that anxiety is like, uh, seeming to be a statistical reality. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, Charlie's only been sick once and it's going to be really interesting when the world opened back up and all these kids who have never been around other kids or like outside environments, like, are they going to get sick all the time? Like, is, like, the flu and really common cold just going to hit them like a ton of bricks because they're 
not building immune systems? I don't know. Um, a friend of mine was just like, you need to take her somewhere and let her lick some poles, like get some, you know, immune fighting things in her body because I don't know. That's a real, I don't know. It's a real concern. I don't know if she's going to get sick. Yeah, actually, um, in terms of just like regular immunities from like germs, I don't know about, but I did NPR's morning edition had a report this morning about um, how the pandemic has affected childhood vaccinations. Oh. And so because so many people are staying at home and so many routine doctor's visits have been put off, um, there's been a big drop globally in um, kids who are getting their basic vaccines against like diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. So the worldwide number was like 84% of kids were being vaccinated and it's dropped to 70% in the last few months, which is a pretty significant drop. And it's, that's like the global numbers. Um, It's much more for um, impoverished countries. And it's like, it's really kind of it's, it's the area of medicine where in the last few decades, we've made the biggest kinds of progressive modern strides. So yeah. like in the seventies, poor countries had only 5% of kids vaccinated. Whereas in 2019, it was 80%. They yeah. were at that threshold of 80%. Yeah. And so now they're dropping even lower than the worldwide total of 70%. And oh. so it's just like, and then when you have, um, uh, a, a country that's impoverished going through a pandemic, how are you going to get that vaccination rate as robust as it was when perhaps clinics have closed because of, you know, economic issues with the pandemic, or maybe doctors who were there are moving to more wealthy countries, who knows? Um, but it's not going to just bounce right back up to that 80% that the impoverished countries are having. So, um yeah. So, so that's just all to say that like, yeah, that basic community thing, but like also the, what the numbers that we know about vaccinations, a, a kind of generation of kids um, are not getting their vaccines. And so some of these diseases, it could be um, in the next few months, or it could be 20, 30 years down the road where losing that booster shot has an impact on the population. I am pro-vaccine, and I'm sorry to all the anti-vacciners out there that I might piss off at the moment, but, like, it makes my blood boil talking to people who, like, choose to not vaccine, like, do vaccines or shots with their children for things that are, like, very openly known to benefit your child. I understand, like, certain things, they're a little newer, like, Honestly, when, when, if we get a COVID vaccine, I don't know if Charlie's going to be the first one on the list. I kind of want to like get some adults in there and see how this is going. So like that, I understand the very basic, basic vaccines that people are choosing not to get, therefore possibly exposing very young children who can't get those vaccines to these things. It makes my blood boil. I get so angry. But this is a different situation. I completely understand. But you're right. What is the long-term effect for that? Like, every single doctor's appointment. Charlie's gone to all of her doctor's appointments this entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the beginning, they were really good. They were super strict. Um, you know, like, they took our temperatures the second we walked in. We got immediately put in a room. Everyone's in masks. You know, they were doing all the precautions and they still are. It's a little more lax. Like I think maybe two parents can come now, but at first it was just like one parent. 
Um, so she's been on top of all of her shots, but I do call every time and I say like, okay, 15 months, are shots necessary? No. Okay. Can we push it? You know, I think 15 months there are shots, but yeah, I know I've called and been like, yeah, can we not do this one? Can we wait a month? But I don't, I don't personally want to mess with their shot schedule because I, you're right. I don't know missing one booster shot if that's really going to affect her down the way. And you're right. I don't know. I don't know. And, and yeah, what they're saying is that it really could. And so it's like, it's important to keep them on those vaccine schedules. Um, that's terrifying. That That's crazy. That's something I never even thought about. That like... Well, glad to have added to your stress. Thank you. <laughs> no, <I'm> <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's just interesting. That's why I love that we're doing this and doing what we're doing because I think we're pulling up a lot of topics in every episode that you don't necessarily think about and just kind of backing the importance of it. And I understand mm-hmm. like taking your child out, taking your infant out um, into the world, especially to a doctor's office. Like you immediately think like, what's one of the grossest place I can take my kids? A doctor's office. Like I get that, but you're right. The like long-term effects of missing a booster or missing anything. I mean, there's so much that you go through at uh, baby well visits. You talk about like developmental things. You talk about like actual physical health. You talk about milestones. You know, just to miss those things, something could start snowballing and God forbid something happens. Yeah. And I just like even um, like telehealth visits, like you can maybe have those conversations, but just like wellness checkups with not only boosters, but like I know my friends who have an infant, like they were telling me about like the doctor was concerned something about her leg joints. And it's like, if you don't have the trained medical professional looking at like your spine and the way your legs are rotating and all of these things, like you could miss something. Yeah. And so it's like telehealth can do some things, but it really can't do everything. Yeah. Like I, um, I actually, my, you know, my postpartum six week visit, I actually am not going to be getting until I think week eight or nine oh. because they were telling me to have a telehealth visit. And I was like, but I want to check and make sure everything's healing. Okay. Yeah. So can I have an in-person visit? And they're like, well, we don't have anything available for that week. And I'm like, okay, so when do you have it available? Because, so it was like, have it at six weeks and be telehealth or have it at week eight or nine. I can't remember and be in person. I was like, well, I'd rather do the in-person because I want to make sure things are healing fine. Um, And that's the choice that I made. And so, you know, hopefully everything is, but it's just, you know, I, I didn't, and I kept saying the receptionist, like, I don't see how you're going to make sure that I'm healing okay and my stitches are fine if it's a telehealth visit. Exactly. So can you even schedule that as a telehealth? She's like, yeah, that's fine. I'm like, I don't feel okay with it. I would like to be examined by a medical professional. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And you're not alone. Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not going to get in depth with it, but scrolling it was an Instagram post or something and there was a woman voicing that exact concern that she is due for her postpartum and it was a struggle to get in in the first place and there was a lot of pushback and a lot so you're not alone at all which is you know and again like we talked about kids there's a lot that goes into your postpartum like they are also checking you for postpartum depression they are checking you that you're healing 
you know, down south and everything. So it's a really crucial. And they're also, um, you know, talking about birth control. And I don't know. I wouldn't feel comfortable not going to my six week. Ooh. Right. And it's like, yeah, again, it's like a lot of things are going to change because of this pandemic. I do think telehealth medicine will be more of a norm. Um, and I think in some ways that will be great because it will allow people who maybe live far away from the doctor to have easier access to the doctor. But there still is a undeniable physical examination that must be done. In ter- like that's that's necessary and can't be done through a screen in any kind of way that I want to imagine, um, that, that, that needs to happen. Um, and so it's just like, you know, I, I hope that doctors are all making smart decisions and like, especially hospitals, right? Because this will probably be led by hospital administrators guidelines on what happens. Um, I know that, um, Health and Human Rights published an article in June called Upholding Rights Under COVID-19, the Respectful Maternity Care Charter, where they were concerned about um, COVID and pregnancy and COVID and labor and delivery. Um, And what they say in this article is, quote, early models estimate significant increases in mortality due to reduced MNH service availability availability resulting from COVID-19. Um, and that was in low-income countries. But it, so what they're saying is in low-income countries, because of things like um, deficiency in um, health systems because people have been rerouted to COVID wards, or a lot of times maternity wards were becoming maternity ward slash COVID ward, or you were taking people off the COVID f- off the maternity floor and putting them on the COVID floor, or you didn't have enough PPE. That in low income countries there was a, an uptick in um, infant and mother mortality, and so. Uh, they like came out with this, like, you can't be (laughs) rerouting people from maternal care units. Like you can't be doing all those things. So luckily in more industrialized nations like the United States that uh, I don't think there's been a demonstrable thing, but again, it's like this thing where it's like, if you're lucky enough to have money or live in an industrialized country, you just like have more of a right to life than other people do. And it's just like, sucks to be you that you live in this scenario where, people are not giving PPE to nurses and those nurses are going between COVID and maternity wards and then infecting mothers. Um, so uh, it's all to say that like there needs to be decisions made at like the higher level of what is strong care and like that convenience or funding or things like that don't take away from the highest standard of care possible. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on Pinterest and I found these infographics about mother like deliveries and COVID and how regardless, you know, women should still be able to get out of their bed and do, you know, deliver in any position that they feel comfortable in. Or um, I'll post them on, I'll post them on our Instagram. So look for that. But um, that exact point, just making sure that, there are these boundaries and there is this, you know, distinguishable difference between a COVID floor and a maternity floor or a COVID nurse and a maternity nurse. Like I understand they float. I understand, especially at the beginning, PPE in the United States was impossible, impossible to find. And they were doing things that you would never imagine in a worldwide pandemic. And, you know, the 
wealthiest nation in the world, you know, here we are United States and we're telling nurses to put scarves on, Mm -hmm. you know, as PPE, like that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. It's a scary time. It's so I asked you earlier, um, because I didn't know you had to wear a mask during delivery, right? Yeah. Um, so they were kind of lax about it, to be honest. Um, because, so I like came in with a mask on, of course, my husband came in with a mask on and, but like the thing is when you're alone in the room for hours and hours and hours, you're taking it off because you're just in there with your partner. And so I would be like putting it back on, but there were times I'd forget. And then I'm like talking to the nurse and I'm like, Oh my God, my mask. And some of the nurses were like, don't worry about it. And some of them were like, thank you. And so that's just like someone's own personal level of comfort. And also like, I don't want to be making a nurse in their workplace feel like they are at risk. Right. I don't, you know, like, but when, um, and I, I asked, you know, should I be wearing my mask? And they said, you know, we would prefer if you wear your mask. They didn't like put a strict thing. Um, and then when I was pushing, I definitely did not have my mask on, um, which of course, is not ideal for the healthcare workers because arguably that's when I'm breathing and sweating and all of that the most. Right. Um, so it was preferred and then it was more strictly adhered to in the like post delivery ward when I was recovering. Um, but again, I would forget because you're kind of living in there for a few days and then they kind of pop in at three in the morning to check on how breastfeeding is going. And it's like, you know, so, um, but, but yeah, they wanted you to have your mask on, um, yeah. during that, which I know that some people would probably be like, Oh my God, I can't even imagine that. But you know, I, I try and respect workers, you know? Um, so I, I was completely fine with it, but it was, it was just kind of a matter of like forgetting. And I think people probably felt bad reminding mothers to put their mask on and therefore did not. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I don't, I, I was just curious. I mean, I understand um, during labor, I could see that being kind of a pain pushing. Oh my God. To push with a mask on sounds terrible, but yeah, I mean, I understand that though. Yeah. There was something I wanted, like, while we're talking about like CDC guidelines and like all of these things to like prevent, like, cause all of this is to prevent the spread, right? Like this is about, and, and again, it's that, what, what are you willing to trade off? Cause it's like, if a parent is infected, like um, this, um, this article I was quoting, um, upholding rights under COVID-19, it's like, you know, there's been some people suggesting like separate mother and infant, um, if the mother is infected. Um, but you know, they were saying like, you know, this is not necessarily the best intervention and like, rather you should uphold mother and, and just have them have a mask on like that, that is the better way than total separation of mother and infant. Um, and so it's like the, all of these are like guidelines that you have to figure out, but it reminded me of just a little research I did with, um, childcare facilities and what I thought was interesting. So like the CDC obviously has like guidelines for reopening childcare programs, like national guidelines, and then there's state guidelines. Did you do any research with this? I did not. Um, so it's kind of all of the things that we're used to where it's like, um, you know, uh, have, um, thermometer checks at the door. If any staff are sick, make them go home. If kids are sick, make them go home. But what I found was really interesting were like all over those CDC guidelines, two phrases kept coming up and they were, um, consider 
and if possible. So it would be like, you know, consider having an isolation room for people who are sick or if possible, have thermometer checks at the door. So what was kind of distressing to me, and I think all parents, and that's why it's like all this onus comes back on the parent of like you checking in with your childcare facility because these national guidelines all have basically loopholes to get you out of doing it. If it's possible, have a thermometer check. It's like, I think if you can't get a thermometer, which by the way, the thermometer thing is flawed from the get-go because a lot of the kids don't have actual presentation of symptoms. They're carrying the virus, so they're not going to get a a fever. So you doing the fever is not really doing anything. But if they do have a fever, you know, it's like get that kid out of there. Um, But I'm sorry, if you can't get a thermometer in your childcare facility at the very least, then you shouldn't be open. I'm sorry. That's, that's, it shouldn't be if possible, but that's what the CDC guidelines say. They say the words if possible around thermometers. And that to me is wild. And um, they also pointed out like how depressingly underfunded our school and childcare systems are because they said, um, wash hands with soap and water or use sanitizer if soap is not available. So it's like we are straight up acknowledging that you do not have enough soap to go around in childcare facilities. So use hand sanitizer if you can't get some soap. Which is hard to come by in the first place. Like getting hand sanitizer, it's more prevalent now and may smell like tequila. But like getting hand sanitizer in general is really hard. Mm -hmm. How can you even have that? Like then what? Then what? And then there's your legal loophole to say, well, we tried, but we couldn't. Right. And so it's like, to me, if you're sending your kid to a childcare facility, it's like you cannot trust that federal guidelines are going to be protecting your child. Right. Uh, It's all of that language just like screams loophole to me. Consider having soap. I I mean, what the fuck? Uh, So it's like you as a parent have this, like, if you do, now we're in, you know, we're we're in the school year. If you've decided to send your kids to a childcare facility, the the onus is really on you to check in with who's running that facility to see, well, what are your daily COVID prevention um, strategies? Yeah. Are you social distancing at nap time? Are you making sure the kids are staying home? Are you making sure your staff is staying at home? Because then you also have the thing of if kids are under two, they should not be wearing masks. So if you have very early childhood care, um, none of those kids are going to be wearing masks uh, because they could suffocate. Um, And so you have even added risk of the spread. Yeah. And children under two, I mean, the amount of stuff and hands that go in the mouth. And I mean, I don't, that's why we haven't done Like, a couple places around us are kind of opening, like, Gymboree-type things are kind of opening right now. And that's why, like, I personally do not feel comfortable um, going to them, regardless of, like, you know, they have all their cleaning stuff and they may have hand sani and, um, you know, they say, like, like, 30 minutes between groups to completely sanitize the area. Like, I understand that. However, my daughter puts every single thing in her mouth. It doesn't matter what the hell it is. The other day I found a rock in her mouth. Like... It goes in the mouth and I can't personally trust it. I want to believe it's true. But even if the CDC is saying, eh, if you can, like, how do I know that your guidelines don't say if you can, when possible, 
will completely disinfect the area. And again, even even regardless, even if the guidelines said must disinfect areas like these, may, it's it's a reality that kids are going to put stuff in their mouths and you just no person can be sure that that area is completely clean. And so it just again comes back to if you as a parent decide to send your kid to a daycare facility because it's it's far too challenging to work from home and parent from home at the same time, because that is a giant challenge. It's just like there is added risk and you just, you just have to know that you're taking that risk on. Right. Exactly. Okay. So did you have anything that you wanted uh, to share about your research with COVID and parenting? No, I think we kind of hit everything. I mean, this is a very new thing and I know with time there'll be more in developments and we can always pop back. I have a feeling this is something we'll be talking about continuously, but uh, no, I'm good. Are you good? Yeah, I'm great. Cool. Um, like we always say, if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter at 7dayworkweekpod. That's the best way to get in touch with us. And of course, we are on almost all major platforms now. So listen to us at the 7 Day Work Week. Um, we post every Friday, seven, 6 a.m., 6 a.m., uh, yeah, I think that's it. Anything else? No, thank you so much for listening, you guys. And if you have any like parenting strategies or anything like that about getting through COVID, feel free to um, contact us on those social media platforms. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.